Today, beloved, we enter a, a new section, a new section of Romans. The next four and a half chapters, chapter 12 and through all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, so about halfway through, of Romans have been defined, or that section has been defined by Bible teachers as a unit dealing primarily with the practice of Christianity, the practice of Christianity. It is a, a practical section composed of a, a series of exhortations intended to instruct Christians, us, in the kind of life we are to live as God's saved and sanctified people. So it's very practical for us. It'll be very practical. The first two verses of this section, which we're going to focus on today, could be understood as a necessity or a necessary introduction to the ethical imperatives or the moral requirements for the believer that Paul will lay out for us, and we'll see this, in these four chapters. Or to say it another way, this intro that we're going to focus in on today sets forth the essential obligations that we must meet in order to be prepared to face the challenges of living as a believer or according to God's word in this fallen world. Paul's first exhortation in this section is a fundamental call to a a certain commitment on the part of his Christian readers. Beloved, uh, this kind of commitment that I'm going to talk about is is not like the one that the chicken makes to my ham and egg breakfast, but it is more like the one that the pig makes. That'll make sense in a second. Basically, the Apostle Paul appeals to the believers in Rome to give themselves, to give themselves to God, or more specifically, to offer their very bodies to God as a living sacrifice. You ready to look at our text? Okay. (laughs) Romans chapter 12. Just two verses this morning, beloved. Beginning in verse 1. Apostle Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's our text for this morning. Now, first off, I want to show you what he says in verse 1. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So he's speaking to Christians, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. You see that phrase? Okay. Another translation of the Bible puts verse 1 this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of of God's mercy. We just read it, but what Paul goes on to urge his Christian readers to do in verse 1 is to present or offer their very bodies to God as a living sacrifice, which we're going to 
talk about here in a moment. But first, I want you to see that this appeal by Paul is being made in view of or in light of God's great mercy. God's great mercy. That's the way to understand by the mercies of God. Now, what mercy exactly is Paul referring to here? What's he talking about? Well, as one writer put it, for 11 chapters, 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. He's been unfolding the mercies of God. Another writer puts it this way, shut your eyes, shut your eyes and think back through the first 11 chapters of Romans. And if you've been with us, you, you can do this, or maybe you've read it before. Think back. Here's the word that should, that should come screaming forth. Mercies! Mercies! That word sums up all that is contained in those chapters. Just mercies upon sinners who do not deserve any mercies. Beloved, it is the mercies of God that are revealed in the gospel to which Paul is referring to in verse 1. It is the saving mercy of God to disobedient and rebellious people. We, just, we, sang, we sang about it this morning, beloved. Son of David, have mercy on me. Indeed, it is the very mercy that Paul referenced towards the end of chapter 11. Okay, so we're in chapter 12. He's been talking about mercies, God's mercy throughout these 11 chapters, but specifically right there in the immediate context, it's there right at the end of chapter 11. Remember, that's where he said, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, speaking to Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, the disobedience of Israel, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Mercy, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And if you remember, last time we looked at that a few weeks ago, I said that God has designed and guided history, both its disobedience and its obedience, so that in the end it will most fully display the reliability of his promises and the magnificence of his mercy the magnificence of his mercy. One writer says this concerning this text. He says it this way, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable, this is us, beloved, inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them his life, giving spirit, and in making them his children. The gospel is God's mercy, beloved. God's mercy. Beloved, it is in light of this marvelous mercy that Paul calls those who have experienced this mercy to commit themselves fully to God. But why? Because that is the appropriate and expected response to this mercy. Or let me say it this way. 
When we stop to contemplate God's great mercy to us as sinners in saving and redeeming us, it should create in us an unceasing and overflowing gratitude and thankfulness and properly lead us to joyfully and willingly live in obedience to all that the gospel demands. Or, to say it in another way, to without reserve give ourselves to whatever it is that God asks of us in his word. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? The mercies of God. Listen, I like this quote. This is interesting to think this through a little bit further. The writer says this, mercy is the leverage for the appeal that follows. Whereas the heathen, the heathen, the the pagan, the one who doesn't worship the one true God, but worships, but worships false gods. The heathen are prone to sacrifice in order to obtain mercy. Do you get that? So they would they would bring something to their God or gods because they were looking for mercy. Right? Biblical faith teaches that the divine mercy, we have it already through Christ. In God, we have it. The divine mercy provides the basis for sacrifice as the fitting response. Our sacrifice. You see the difference? You see how unique and different Christianity is? God saves us. He redeems us. It's a, it's a work of his love and his grace and his mercy. It is that very mercy that then compels us to sacrifice our very selves to God, to give our lives to him and for him. Whereas the pagan mind is, is looking for mercy and they're bringing sacrifices in order to obtain it, doing something they think they can merit it or something that would cause their God or gods to extend mercy to them. But we already have it through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's that very mercy that drives the Christian life. You see how different Christianity is? Beloved, the great motive for us giving ourselves totally to God, again, as we are exhorted to in the Scriptures, is the fact that we have experienced and tasted for ourselves God's amazing mercy to us in Jesus Christ. By the way, this is why we talk about it often. This is why it is so important that we continue to hear and to preach the gospel to ourselves because in it we are reminded of what, beloved? God's great mercy, and thereby motivated to give all that we are to him. Think about it, right? Grab your bulletin, if you have one. Grab your bulletin. We, in a, in a very general way here, outline for you the gospel. And it says on the back, preach the gospel to yourself. Not only are we called to preach it to others so that they may hear the good news and, Lord willing, respond in repentance and faith, but but we, beloved, need to continue to preach this wonderful good news to ourselves. Check out the first bullet point. While you were in open rebellion against your Creator, He, God, in His mercy, reached out to you 
and provided an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for your sin. Mercy, beloved! That substitute was his own son who willingly died on a cross in your place, rising again in accordance with the eternal plan whereby God had graciously decided to save his own enemies. Mercy, beloved. Because you had no interest in him, huh? God sought you out. God sought you out. And through his Holy Spirit, created the faith that you needed to embrace his gift for you. Mercy, beloved. One more. In saving you, God not only freed you from the penalty of your sin, but also from slavery to sin, granting you access to the power necessary to say no to sin's temptations. Beloved, that's ongoing mercy. By the way, this is... This is in part why it is so important to be part of the church. In part. It is to be exposed again and again to the gospel of God, to the mercies of God. We sing about them, we read about them, we preach about them. It is to see the mercies of God at work in the people of God. It is to hear my brothers and sisters in Christ talk about the mercy of God. Glory in the mercy of God. And by that, be reminded of that mercy that I as well have received and tasted. And by that, be motivated again and again and again to lay down my life for the one who has shown me such great mercy. People wonder why they get in such a funk when they... When they move away from the church or they're not plugged in or they're not really part of the church, beloved. This is why in part. This is why in part. Look back at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of that mercy or in light of it, I, I appeal, I urge you. When we take that into consideration, I, I urge you. I exhort you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, what exactly is Paul urging his Christian readers to do? What is he urging them to do? Well, the picture or imagery Paul uses here of offering up our bodies as a sacrifice to God is certainly based upon the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Generally speaking, in that sacrificial system, the Jew would take the prescribed animal to the temple, and after the priest took the animal's life, it was placed on the altar and burned. The whole burnt offering ascended to God and could never be reclaimed. It, in its entirety, belonged to God. It belonged to God. Okay? Do you get that? Do you understand that? I mean, there's more we could say about the sacrificial system, but I'm just trying to give you the general idea here. 
and what I think Paul is getting at. One writer says this, the burnt offering was to be consumed by fire in order to impress upon the worshiper that it was no longer theirs. It belonged to God. Beloved, listen. God is not calling us as Christians, as New Testament believers, to bring some animal to the altar to sacrifice to God, but rather He is calling us through the Scriptures to offer our very selves to Him as a sacrifice. More specifically, to present to Him our very bodies to give our bodies entirely over to God that they might be used by Him to fulfill His righteous will, which He has revealed to us in His Word. Beloved, think about this for a moment. Our bodies, talking about our physical bodies, our bodies are the vehicles through which you and I serve the Lord. Huh? Yeah. As one pastor said, God gets no service except it be manifested through the body. Hands, feet, mouth, tongue, through the body. Another writer says this, God cannot work through us without in some way working through our bodies. If we speak for him, I'm, I'm relying on my body to do this right, right now, right? In fact, you're listening to the speaking of God's word through your ear canals. Yeah, exactly, through your your body. So if we speak for him, it must be through our bodies. If we go to do his work, we must use our feet, right? If we help others in his name, it must be with our hands. And then the author, pastor says, there can be no sanctification, no holy living apart from our bodies. So Paul urges us as Christians to relinquish our bodies to God, to offer them to him as a sacrifice that God might accomplish his good and righteous purposes through us, through our bodies in this fallen world. Now listen, Paul qualifies this sacrifice with three adjectives. In the text, living, holy, and acceptable, all helping us understand further the sacrifice. Let's consider those just for a moment. That this sacrifice is to be living (laughs) reflects two things. It's voluntary and it's ongoing. It's voluntary and it's ongoing. One writer says this, the sacrifices of the new order, or what God has called us to as New Testament Christians, do not consist in taking the lives of others like the ancient animal sacrifices, but rather in giving one's own. In giving one's own. Get this, beloved. Remember, when the animal was brought to be a sacrifice to God, right? Its life was taken, and then it was laid upon the altar and sacrificed and burnt up for God. Did it have any say in that? No. No. But God calls us to be living sacrifices. We are alive and willingly, we are placing ourselves on the altar for God, our very bodies. That's the idea. 
Beyond that, if it's living, it means it's not dead. It doesn't cease to be. It's alive. It continues on being the sacrifice for God. One writer just says it this way. It does not die as it is offered. It goes on living. Therefore, it continues as a sacrifice in its efficacy. It just, that just means it continues to produce the desired result. That is, until the person who is offered or who has offered themselves finally dies. Very different. Living sacrifice, voluntary, ongoing. But as someone once said, maybe you've heard this before, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep climbing off the altar. That's a problem, isn't it? On that note, one writer adds this. There is no reason in the context to think that Paul would view this presentation as an offering that we make only once. Paul simply commands us to make this offering, saying nothing about how often it needs to be done. I would suggest to you that this commitment, beloved, this relinquishing of our bodies for God's purposes, for God's holy, righteous purposes, it would be an offering that should be made, but then continually renewed in our minds and in our hearts. Okay? You find yourself climbing back down off that altar, you climb back up on it. You climb back up on it. That this living sacrifice, now listen, we talked about living, that this living sacrifice of our bodies is to be holy, don't miss this, implies that our bodies, our bodies, beloved, are to be set apart for God and dedicated unto God's service, which necessarily means our separation from sin in pursuit of righteousness. As a holy sacrifice, we must then be in the practice of confessing and turning from our sins and remain committed to carrying out a life of obedience to God. Our bodies are not to be used for unrighteousness, but yielded to God as instruments for his righteousness. We saw that in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. So you heard what I just said about the body, right? Our mouth, ears, our eyes, our hands, our feet. They're to be holy, set apart to and for God. They're not to be used to sin or for sin, but for his very righteousness in dedication and service to God. And beloved, such a sacrifice as this is truly acceptable or pleasing to God. Is truly acceptable or pleasing to God. Now look back at the text. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. The last part of verse 1 right here, 
which is your spiritual worship. It's translated that way in the ESV. You may have a different translation. It's been, like I said, translated in a few different ways. And that is in part because the Greek word translated spiritual here in the ESV. Uh, and in that sense, when it translates it spiritual, it likely means um, inner. It's a sense of inner or a worship that involves the mind and the heart. A worship that involves the mind and the heart. But that word can also be translated rational or reasonable. Rational or reasonable. By the way, it is the same Greek word from which we get our word logical. Logical. After studying the passage, I believe reasonable, reasonable, which is how the New King James translated it. So if you grew up in the church a long time ago, I mean, basically what we had was the New King James. You, you would have seen reasonable there. Or another translation called the NET, another good translation, translates it reasonable. I think that's a better translation. Based on that, I think Paul's point here, listen, is that offering ourselves fully to God, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, is the only reasonable or sensible or logical or appropriate response to him in view of the mercies he has given us. It's reasonable, beloved. It is, it is sensible. It is, it is appropriate for rational beings created by God to offer themselves to him. One writer just says it this way, in, in view of God's acts of mercy, it is entirely fitting, it is entirely fitting that we commit ourselves without reservation to him. Now, look again back at verse 2. Paul says this. Actually, we're at verse 2 now. That was verse 1. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How many of you heard that passage before? It's pretty common. It's used on a regular basis. Do not be conformed to this world. I believe, though, the relationship between this verse, verse 2, and the one that we just looked at is this verse gives us the means by which we can truly carry out Paul's exhortation in verse 1. Context. So by that I mean we can present our bodies to the Lord as genuinely holy and acceptable sacrifices only if we are not conformed to this world, but rather transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, what does it mean to not be conformed to this world? What does that mean? That means we don't dance, Jeremy. Okay. <laughs> because that actually is a position that has been taken by the church at some point throughout its history. You know, don't dance. Don't wear pants if you're a gal. <laughs> uh, uh, don't play cards. Don't let alcohol touch your lips. 
right? That that's what it means to be conformed to this world. <sighs> Let me talk about this a little bit. One writer put it this way concerning that phrase, not to be conformed to this world. We are not to be like a chameleon. You know what a chameleon is? Which takes its color from its surroundings. That's okay. That's general. Others have said that it means not letting the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Squeeze you into its mold. And beloved, being squeezed into the world's mold is certainly something we should want to resist because the world in which we live is fallen. It is broken. It calls evil good. Huh? It calls evil good. And it calls good evil. It rejects our God. In a multitude of ways. And it mocks. It mocks his word. That's the world. Its plans and desires stand in direct opposition to God's plans and desires. The book of James tells us that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James chapter 4, verse 4. In fact, the scriptures indicate that Satan, Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Which means in part that his corrupting and wicked influence has infiltrated every area of life. Like education. Huh? Any of you have been through the system? That sounds weird, but you know what I'm talking about. Government. Government. Religion. Religion, beloved. Any religion apart from Christianity has been influenced by Satan. Entertainment, oh my goodness, right? Which, by the way, we are an entertainment-saturated culture. So just be thinking about that as you take in doses and doses and doses of entertainment, maybe without even thinking. And then business. Everything, everything has been, has been perverted to one degree or another or influenced by the evil one, this world. And beloved, as Christians, we certainly aren't immune to the persuasive, corrupting, and wicked influences of a world that lies under the power of the evil one. You know how I know that? Because if we were immune to it, Paul wouldn't have told us to resist it or to not be conformed to it. There'd be no reason to tell us. Right? I've got a force field on. I can live in the world and it has no impact on me. No, it does have an impact on us. Sometimes like fools, we willingly embrace 
the world and his thinking and his philosophies, but often just because we live in this fallen, messed up world and we're not careful, we absorb, we take on, we adopt the sinful thinking, the sinful philosophies, the sinful practices of this fallen and messed up world, beloved. Paul says, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed. One writer says it this way. It, the world, cannot and must not serve as a model for Christian living. Its values and goals are antithetical. That means they express the exact opposite. They're antithetical to growth and holiness. The church, who's that? That'd be us, and that's right. Christians should stand out from the world as a demonstration of God's intention for the human race. I am holy, God says. I have called you to be holy as my people. Set apart for me, for my purposes, which are righteous, just. Beloved, I was just thinking about this. I didn't put it in my notes, but I was looking at some other stuff. And again, you know, this idea of being set apart or not conforming to the world, immediately, often we go to things like, you know, well, you know, you should dress a certain way. You should dress a certain way. Now, there's obviously commands in the scriptures about modesty, right? But then people want to define exactly what that means. And so, you know, for instance, a woman can't wear pants. That, that's, how the, that's how the church responded at one time. Okay, so that's not modest. So a woman can't wear pants. Since we've been called not to be trans, you know, conformed to the world, and these women are wearing pants, then we don't want to be like the world, so women can't wear pants. And so, you know, so then women wear dresses, okay, and look at that. She's not conformed to the world. You know, it's usually this stuff like that, like that, where I never have to really deal with my heart or my mind. I can just kind of do some type of external compliance and look at me. Look at me. I'm not conforming to the world. Beloved, it is primarily, I'm going to tell you right now, it is primarily in the mind, in the mind that we conform to the world. It's in our thinking and in our hearts. One writer was just pointing out, he was saying this, you know, what are your dreams and your ambitions and, and, and your goals in life? Do they have anything to do with the world to come? Or are they all about this world? Are they all about the temporary? If they are, beloved, you have been conformed to this world. If all of your calculations in life are based upon the temporary, are based upon the here and now, that is a passing away, that is going to burn up. If they are, that is exactly what the world does. That is exactly how they think. This is it for them. This is their focus. This is where they're trying to get their satisfaction. Is that you? If it is, you've been conformed to this world. To whatever degree that's true. Or are you living in light of the glory to come? Are you living in light of heaven, of your eternal home? Is that your focus? Is, is that how you calculate your life? 
or make your plans or set your goals. Huh? You see? Hmm. I was just thinking, I I can't stop here, so I just want to think a little bit more about this because you're with me, you're with me, that's good, so let's spend a little more time. Uh, Any of you know who Bruce Jenner is? Now, this is is interesting. Let's be careful, let's be careful. Uh, Bruce Jenner, they were saying this is fascinating. He's, He's known by the older generation and the new. The new because of the Kardashians, the old because of his Olympic feats, greatness. Bruce Jenner, you know, if you don't know, recently told the world on Diane Sawyer that he's a woman. He's a woman. He's trans, what they call transgender. Uh, What is most crazy to me is the response that it's generating in our world. He's a hero. He's a hero, and he's brave. He's a model for all of our young people. You see that, beloved? That's the thinking of the world. That's the philosophy of the world. They call evil good. They call evil good. And when a Christian stands up and says, no, I don't, I don't think that's appropriate, not because I don't think it is, but because God doesn't think it is, then they call us evil. You're a hater. You're intolerant. You're evil. You're mean, spirited. You're not progressive, blah, 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 blah. We've got to be careful, beloved. It's all around us. We can begin to absorb these kind of things. How about a culture that now is absolutely okay with sex outside of marriage? Huh? Right? And you old fogies, you traditionalists who say that marriage should still be reserved for the union, the marital union. And by that we mean a man and a woman. Born a man and a woman. You guys, are, you guys are not progressive. You're not with it. You're not with the times. You're on the wrong side of history. Our very president, beloved, says such things. I am, according to him, I am on the wrong side of history because I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Why? Because I just believe it? No, because the scriptures teach it. You see what I'm saying? We can be influenced by such things. But I mentioned those things last, and I mentioned the other thing first because often we just go for those things. Well, see, I, I'm not conformed to this world because I still, I don't, I think homosexuality is a sin. I think the whole transgender thing is, is, a, is diabolical. Great, fine. Let me tell you, let me ask you a question now. How do you live your life? Forget that part for a second. How do you live your life? Are you living it in light of the glory that is to come, or are you placing all your stakes, everything you got here in this temporal world? Well, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know about all that. Well, you should, because if you are, then you have allowed yourself to be conformed to this world. You see? 
But listen, it's not just about resisting the pressure of being squeezed into the mold of this world, right? It's not just that or the pattern of behavior that typifies it, but rather it is about being transformed or changed. Transformed or changed, that's what Paul says. But how? By the renewal of our minds. By the renewal of our minds. By the reprogramming of the incredible computers God has given us. Why? In order to truly serve and worship him. Now, beloved, why do we need to be reprogrammed? Why do you think? Yeah, there you go, because we're messed up out of the front row. Because, I mean, that's basically it, too. Uh, Some or even a great deal of our programming that we already have is bad. It is sinful, okay? And it's, it's messed up. It's messed up, beloved. And living in this fallen world, we are prone, as I told you, to adopt unbiblical or ungodly ways of thinking, often without even knowing it. We just absorb it because we're not paying attention. And of course, it doesn't help that we continue to expose ourselves to junk. I would just encourage you not to do that without getting into the list of the junk, you know, trying to list all the junk out for you. Don't expose yourself to junk. It has an impact on you. One writer commenting on this reprogramming of our mind says this, the reprogramming of the mind, by the way, does not take place overnight. It's not like a one-time deal. This not being conformed that Paul talks about in the passage, leave it up for a second, this not being conformed and being transformed by the renewing of your mind, they're, they're in a particular tense, meaning that it's a present tense. It's an ongoing thing that we are continuing to, do, to be doing. So I'm to continue to not be conformed to this world, and I'm to continue to be transformed, how? By the renewing of my mind. It's a lifelong process by which our way of thinking is to resemble more and more the way I want you to think. Right, exactly. The way your wife wants you to think. The way your husband wants you to think. The way the government wants you to think. No, no, no. It's the way that God wants you to think. And to the degree that I am commanding, or I don't have that kind of authority, I am appealing to you by the power of God's word to think this way, and I'm, it's in line with the word of God, then yes, you should listen. You see? It is, it is thinking like God. Now, how is it that I come to think the way God wants me to think? How do you think? How do you think that happens? Lord, 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 please zap my mind. Please zap my mind. Please download, download into my messed up mind the right way to think. Do you think that's how it happens? And he's sitting there going, I already downloaded it for you to read it. I gave you eyes. I gave you a mind. I gave you language. I gave you my very words. I gave you my spirit that you might understand it, that you might be able to believe it, that you might be able to embrace it. I gave you everything. What are you asking me for? I have given you how it is you are to think. I've given you my word. 
This is so important, beloved, because listen, how we think is really the driving force behind how we live. It is. That's why I've said over and over again, Christianity is not about some esoteric experience or being zapped by lightning. Christianity is a thinking person's religion. It is a religion that begins in the mind, moves to the heart, and manifests itself in our lives and in our wills. I mean, even the very gospel, I have to tell somebody things, facts, historical truths about the person of Jesus Christ. I have to tell them things, facts, truths, things that are written in his word about them and their need for salvation. And then they have to hear it, they have to believe it, and then they have to respond to it by faith in order to be saved. They don't get zapped. To the degree that your thinking is unbiblical, beloved, so will your life be. So will your life be. If you think marriage is optional, if you, if you think that it's not that big of a deal, if you think sex outside of marriage is okay, if you think that we get to decide who gets to be married and marriage is based on love, if, if you think whatever it is, if your thinking is unbiblical, it will drive your life towards an unbiblical pattern. You'll think like the world thinks. You'll act like the world thinks because their thinking is unbiblical. It's not influenced by God. They've rejected their creator and they mock the very thing they need. One writer says this, the key to this transformation, to this change, is the mind. It's the mind. That's why, you know, be, be transformed. How, Paul? Uh, I don't know, therapy. You need some good therapy. Uh, physical therapy, maybe. I don't, I don't know. You need a getaway. You need to go find yourself. That's how you're transformed. Go off to the Himalayas or, I don't know, to India or somewhere like there and, and search out the gurus, and that's how you'll be. By the renewal of your mind. It's because the, the mind is the control center. Listen, this is what the person says of one's attitudes of one's thoughts, of one's feelings, and one's actions. It's the control center, the mind. As one's mind keeps on being made new by the spiritual input of God's word, his lifestyle or her lifestyle keeps on being transformed. Let me just see for some testimony here real quick. You've been a Christian, and you've seen exactly what I'm talking about in your life. That the word of God, as you've read it, as you've studied it, as you've learned from it, as you've put it into your mind and your heart, has transformed the way you live. Huh? How many of you? Show me some hands. Now, even if you didn't show me any hands, I'd tell you it's true because it's right here. But your experience affirms what the word of God says. I already know it's true. But your own experience affirms this. It is the word of God, beloved, that transforms us. And again, this is why... This is why we want to be all about this. Not just on Sunday morning. And when I say we, I'm talking about us and us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just summit as a collective body, but us. You know, not just on Sunday, not just in formal times, but in private times. We want, we need to be about this, this book. 
I got to finish. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then he says this, that by testing, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A little more technical stuff here. That, that Greek word uh, translated, it's actually, you see the words uh, testing, may discern. Testing may discern. It's one Greek word. It's one Greek word. Uh, in other translations, it's translated prove, prove. You'll find that in the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Bible, some of you have that. It basically means to discern and approve, okay? Discern and approve as a result of testing, as a result of testing. That's what the Greek word is. Here's another translation of the same verse. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The idea of approving the will of God means that we understand it, okay? We discern it, and that we agree with it. We agree with what God wants of us, and we have a view of putting it into practice. I approve of it. I desire to do it. I understand what it is, and I desire to do it. So, what is the blessed result of a renewed mind, of a mind saturated in the scriptures of the word of God? It is a mind that is enabled to understand and approve the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God for our lives. And here I am not talking about what type of car you should buy whether red or green or Honda or Toyota. I'm talking about how we are to live morally. That's what Paul's talking about, how we are to live out our lives before God. The one who is, like I said, saturated in the scriptures is the one who understands how God wants him to live and is approving of what God wants him to do with his life or her life. In the context of Romans, that will is revealed in the remainder of this chapter and the following chapters. And I am, I am just flat out excited to be able to, to dive into all that with you in the coming months. Let me close with this, beloved. Just as a kind of a summary. Just listen. God has called us to offer our very bodies to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is entirely reasonable and fitting for us to do, huh? As those who have been made objects of his divine mercy. But in order to truly fulfill and maintain this commitment, we must not let the world around us squeeze us into its mold. But rather, we must be changed, transformed by the continual renewing or reprogramming of our messed up minds through a steady diet and study of God's holy word. Then we will know and approve God's good, acceptable, and perfect, complete will or his moral direction for our lives. 
and be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we confess, Lord, we confess right away. I just want to start with confession, Father. Lord, no, I'm going to back away from that. I'm going to start with your mercies. Father, we as, as your people, your, your adopted children, those justified people, sanctified people, those people who have been saved from the wrath to come, we are people who are, have tasted of your mercy. We live in it. We exalt in it, Father. And may we continue to, to remember it, to, to, to meditate on it, it is in view of that great mercy that, that your servant Paul, the Apostle Paul, appeals and urges us as Christians to, to, to present our very bodies as a, as a living sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable Father. Father, we desire to do that and, and live out that commitment before you. But Lord, we also confess that to one degree or another, in any given time, we, we do, we have allowed ourselves to be conformed to this world, to this sinful world. We may think like the world, we may be acting like the world as a result of our bad thinking. We, we, we adopt for ourselves philosophies and, and ideas that are antithetical to you that oppose you and, and go against your holiness and your righteousness that we find revealed to us in your word. Father, might, might you reveal those to us as we read your word and we see it in the light of that, and might we quickly reject those ideas or that thinking or that way of, of living, Lord? Why don't we thrust it aside They should have nothing to do with us. We are to live in this world as your people, not as people of the world. And Lord, may we commit ourselves and recognize that the transformation that we need, the change that we need, it comes by the renewal of our mind. It comes by a change in in our thinking as a result of being exposed to and coming under your very word where we find truth, real truth, life-changing, preserving, sanctifying truth. Lord, may we commit ourselves to that thing as well. May we, may we commit to, to knowing the word, knowing it and living under it. Father, that we might know your will, which is good and pleasing and perfect, that we might live for you in a way that is acceptable to you, Father, and holy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.